about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Father, you are astounding, you are beyond measure, beyond compare, beautiful and worthy and majestic and powerful and mighty, and we cannot live without your voice. We pray now as we gather around your Son in the power of your Spirit that you would shape us and revive us, and renew us to be your body, for your glory. Amen. Three centuries ago, just outside of Boston, lived a woman named Sarah. Now, Sarah was fairly, well, ordinary. Sure, she had 12 children and was married to a fairly genius reclusive pastor husband, but she lived a fairly ordinary life. One part of her life that was very simple was that when there wasn't a place uh, to stay in the town, people would stay with them. That's a bit shocking. I'm glad that doesn't exist anymore as a pastor. And so day after day, she would take people into her house and week after week, month after month, year after year, make them part of her family. One such person was a man named Samuel Hopkins. And when Samuel walked into the house, he was in a desperate, depressed place. He was training to be a pastor, uh, but had, his faith somehow had crumbled underneath him. And he got into that dark place of faith that we often find ourselves, not knowing who Christ is really in our hearts and not knowing how to call out to him. So he hid himself in Sarah's house day after day. One day, as recorded in his journal, Sarah knocks on the door and walks in. And she says, you know, you're a part of my house now, so I pray for you. And I've noticed that you're dark and you're gloomy. I just wanted to know what's happening. And he says, I confess to her that I was in a Christless, graceless state. That's an old school way of saying it's not going too good. She said to him, well, I've been praying for you. And he writes, She trusted that I should relieve light, receive light and comfort, and doubted not that God intended yet to do great things with me. Samuel goes on in his journal to record these encounters with this woman, Sarah, and her prayerfulness, and is speaking into his life. And what happens as he leaves this house and leaves the genius pastor behind and his wife goes on to become, in Boston, the first pastor to openly preach against slavery in America. He goes on to compile a book of theology that is used in Yale and Harvard for the next 50 or 60 years. A pastor training who doesn't know what he's going to do is transformed by the words of one into a force 
that starts a movement and to compile works that would spark incredible things. When I hear of stories like Sarah's, I long to see the same thing happen around me, don't you? Don't you long to be used by God in a way like that? Not in a way that makes you impressive or powerful, but in a way that's connected to something big, something amazing, to the people around you. Uh, Often we live such compartmentalized lives and we walk into church and we're not even sure what God is doing in our life or in the life of our people around us or in our community. And we long to see God at work. I think it's in that state and with that story before us we can approach 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 shows us what it's like for God to be working in and through us as a community. What it looks like to be involved as Sarah was in that great work of building God's kingdom in the power of his spirit. I want to look at four things going through this passage. Not three, I'm sorry, I let you down. And we'll reveal them as we go through. Four things that show us what this is all about. The first one is this. The first thing that we often forget about the way that God is at work is that the first miracle is the greatest. Have a look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now, about spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or another, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one says, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul steps into the situation of Corinth here for a second, and the Corinthians are very confused. They're used to a plural of spiritual influences in their town, as anyone is in the ancient world and in lots of parts outside the West, used to a deeply spiritual atmosphere. And you'd walk into different temples and different spaces and different spiritual things would be happening. And the difference of the spiritualities spoke of the different deity or the different idol behind it. And so when the Corinthians walked into church and there was a guy over there speaking a language that they didn't understand and, and someone over here who seemed to heal people when they prayed for them and some other guy getting up to preach... They were a little bit confused because in their mind, different things happening meant different gods, something different. But Paul wants to clarify this. He says, no, no, no. What you're seeing, let me clarify it for you. I know you guys get confused and I know you get led away to other idols and other spiritual entities. Let me make it clear. Someone says Jesus is Lord. It is from the Holy Spirit and there is no other way it can. The first miracle of faith and the center and the greatest work is when the Spirit enters someone's life and allows them to submit to the Lordship of Jesus. That, to Paul, is the defining factor of spirituality. Anything from which someone does something And they love and submit to the Lord Jesus is from the Holy Spirit, no matter what type of thing it is. And if they say Jesus is cursed, then clearly the Holy Spirit is not in them. You see, the original and greatest work that God is doing in your life is opening your your hand, opening your heart, opening your mind to the majestic reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That is no simple thing, friends. On one hand, because Jesus was the crucified one, the shamed one, the broken one, the executed one from chapter 2, the foolish one. To bow to him is madness. And on the other hand, we don't like to bow to anyone. And the first miracle that God does among us is somehow working through all the circumstances of our life and then in an instant when the word is spoken to us, lights us up and leads us to the Lord Jesus and makes, lets us bow our knee willingly and offer ourselves to him. So if you've walked into church tonight and you're wondering where God is in your life and what he might be doing, that is what he's trying to do. He's trying to get your knees to hit the ground. He's trying to pull your bent palms open. You know those instances where you feel the tug on your heart to do something different with your money or to live a different life at work or to be a different person in a different place to the people who hurt you? In those instances, the Spirit of God opening you up to the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the first miracle is the greatest miracle, is the ongoing miracle, is the center of it all. Saying, living, submitting to the Lordship of the Lord Jesus. Now, as you look, as for the Corinthians, this is helpful because as they look across the variety of the spiritual things happening, they know that all these people are proclaiming Jesus as Lord. And for us, as we look over what we might expect God to be doing, it's helpful for us as well, because often what happens is we expect God to do in the future what we've seen him do in the past. And so we think things are from God when they've been like the things we've experienced in the churches we've seen in the places we've been in in the past. When we meet something new, we're quite skeptical of it. We might be used to really natural things, um, not the supernatural, and we think God works in the natural, or we've only seen God do supernatural things, and so we only think God works in the supernatural. But what this says is, no matter what your experience of the past is, if it's about the lordship of Jesus, if it's about knees touching the ground before him, if it's about his grace and his gospel, then it's from the Spirit. The first miracle is the greatest miracle, is the center. God is at work when the lordship of Christ is exalted. But the second thing we get, as we look through this, we think about how God is at work among us. Uh, and the second thing we kind of forget is the source of our talents. We're told this story in our culture about our talents and our skills. And it's about the fact that really, deep inside us, is some sort of divine spark of beauty that is trying to find its way out. And your talents belong to you. They're your greatest glory. And you've got to let them come out into the world. They're your possession, your potential. And our culture lays on us this exhausting task of bringing our talents to the world and offering them to the world. It says the source of our talent is our hearts and our souls. But what Paul is very clear to say here is that all the gifts and all the things experienced amongst the Corinthians find their source in God. Have a look at verse 4 and following. You see the repetition of the word same all the way through. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God. And then again, you see it on the way through. Paul is at pains to show that everything that the Corinthians experience is not from different deities, nor from different human personalities, but from God. You notice how there's a triune formula there? 
get the Spirit in verse 4, the Lord in verse 5, and God, often in that trio, means God the Father in verse 6. So everything that the Corinthians experience comes from the triune God. Now this is a very important point. Because if you look on, and this struck me as I was reading it in verse 7, there's a very interesting description of the, the phenomena that the Corinthians are experiencing. Now to each one, Paul says, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Now that's a really weird word, don't you think? Manifestation. That's not the word I would have chosen. It's a word that refers to a, a sort of revelation, a sort of uh, disclosing or opening of a reality. And what Paul is pointing to is that all these gifts that he then goes on to list, these, these healing and these miraculous powers and these gifts of uh, wisdom and, and knowledge and all these things, all of them are manifestations not of human potential, but of the majesty of God. All these gifts mentioned in this whole chapter are little slithers of the majesty of God. Because God is the one who heals the sick as he brings life to everything. He's the one who brings miracles by holding stars in his hand. As we read in Job 28, there is nowhere to find wisdom and knowledge because God alone knows where it is. It belongs to him and he hands it out. Even people who uh, uh, help others, uh, patronage of the poor, echo his heart for the poor. And those who lead with gifts of administration echo his great leadership of all things. You see, the source of all the talent that the Corinthians have is the majestic, glorious God. And all their gifts are little reflections, little slithers of Him. It's not about them. It's about Him. They're beholding the glory of the true God in the gifts of one another. And I find this incredible because as you look through this set of gifts, some of them seem very supernatural. Healing, very supernatural. Others are pretty normal, really. Administration, like that's pretty standard. But apparently, all of them echo God in some way. All of them echoing His majesty and who He is. One of the things we forget about when God is working among us uh, is that it's not our skill and our talent on show, but His glory shown among us. The third thing we get from this passage that we need to know is that God is a bodybuilder. God is a bodybuilder. It says in verse 7 that these manifestations of the Spirit are given for the common good. They're not given for the exalting of the individual for their fulfillment and actualization and their ego, but given for the whole, given for the sake of others. I don't know if you've had the situation where you've had a party or something and you've got gifts and you've had that situation where you've got a lot of the same thing. You have that situation? When Cass and I got married, we got a lot of two things. Towels, which we unsold with profit. It's the way to go. But the second thing we got was just heaps and heaps and heaps of platters. Every type of platter, fish-shaped platters, you know, little hexagonal ones and, you know, cake things that I don't know what to do with that I haven't used in eight years. So all these types of platters. And the reality of platters 
is that you can't use them every day. You don't sit down at the table and kind of serve up the steak and the mash and the things on a platter, right? Platters are made for community. They're made for the party. They're made for the gathering. They're made for the, you know, the people. And, you know, God gives gifts to his people, manifestations of the spirit of his glory, like we got platters for our wedding. They only make sense in community. They're for the sake of one another. They're for the common good, not the individual good. And the freeness of the way God gives these gifts is the reason for that. It says that each one of us is given a gift. And in verse 11, that all of these are given uh, each as God determines. We are freely given these not because of who we are, not because of what we have, but because of his sovereign, loving, kind, gracious will. Everything is from him. It's a free gift lavished on us. And so they're like platters in our hands. And as we have freely received, we offer them to the community to be used. And as you glance across these gifts, it makes sense, right? If you think about the gift of wisdom, you know, that gift of living uh, under the pressure of life in the cross-shaped way that Jesus did, I have a friend like this who's, who's gifted in wisdom, and it's like he has a blueprint to life that I just have know nothing about. And he can help me deal with life in a gospel way like none of my other friends. You know, He doesn't have that for his own sake. He has that for my sake because I don't know what I'm doing. You know, The gift of distinguishing between different types of spirits, essential for a community of believers who are trying to work out when is God saying something and when isn't he? And when is a false prophet or something trying to say something. Those people who can say, no, don't listen to that. Listen to God. Come back to his word. That's a gift to the community. Or how about the gift of faith? Those people who have such a confidence in God's ability to get the job done that they energize the community to to risk everything for the sake of the kingdom of God. Or how about healing? That ability to pray for others and God helping them and healing them from disease and illness. That's not for the person. It's for the the person who receives it and the community who sees and who praises God and trusts him with their whole heart. All these gifts are for others. They're all platters. They're not for the self. They're for the other. And as Paul goes on to explain what God is doing in, in distributing gifts and in shaping people in a community and in gathering them together, he says in verse 12, the body is a unit, though it's made up of many parts And though its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks or slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. What God is doing among us is this beautiful artistic work in his spirit of forming and shaping and molding a community of individuals who he has uniquely gathered for the sake of his name and the sake of each other. The things you've been given by God that echo his glory are for the sake of the building of his body and the glory of his name. And this leads us to the fourth thing about this body and the way God uses it and the way God works in it. And that's in this body, every single person is both needy 
and needed. Every single person is both needy and needed. That's what this whole body part thing is about. You know, I was reading this and I was like, really, Paul, do we really have to change gear to this strange sort of soliloquy with puppets where one's an eye and an ear and it just seems like a strange change of gear, doesn't it? Um, this, it's kind of great, but kind of odd. Um, and I think what Paul's doing here is he's actually trying to disarm us. He's trying to sneak the truth in kind of behind these puppets he's put up in front of us. Uh, to the proud Corinthians, he's trying to cut their heart with a simple truth that they need one another. And that none of them can do the Christian walk in the power of the Spirit without one another. As you look through this section, there's kind of two kind of motifs. The first one is in verse 5, where there's a bunch of body parts who don't think they belong to the body. They don't think they're needed. They don't think they're even part of what's happening because of the person that they are and the gifts that God's given them. thinking, well, I'm not really part of the body of of Christ, right? I can't really speak in tongues or I can't really do this, so I don't really, I can't really be part of the body or the, uh, the ear in another part, thinking, you know, I'm not really part of this. But what Paul says is that the diversity actually makes the community. The fact that there is difference is what makes a body function at all. If everyone was an eye, it couldn't be a body, it couldn't function as it was supposed to. But in fact, in verse 18, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. This is an incredible thing. Every single one of you gathered in God's house, in this community, is uniquely shaped here for the good of this body, for its functioning, for its upbuilding in the Lord Jesus. It's, it's tempting to walk into a church like this that seems to just function and think, I'm not really needed here. But what Paul says is that he brought, God has brought you here because you need to be here, because he wants to use you here, because you are essential to this body function. And without it, it's losing a little finger or an eye or some, something else, I don't know. Every single one of you is required. And that also makes the flip side true. And that's the second bit you see here. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. One of the temptations in community uh, is to pretend that we can be self-sufficient and that the gifts we have are enough and that the faith we have is enough. But that's not what you've been gathered into. You've been gathered into something that you need. You actually need the people around you. And the way that God works in here in this body that he's gathered is through that neediness and neededness. Where he takes parts of the body that are good at some things and in relationship with other parts and uses them to grow other parts. There is no other way in which God is working in community than that. And I don't know where you fall into this this evening, whether you feel like you're surplus to requirements here or whether you feel like you don't really need parts of the community. But either way, God is calling you to see the reality of how he is working here, knitting a body together for his name's sake. The question this might raise in your mind is, well, how do I know how I'm needed? 
How is it that I know what God wants to do with me? And you know, if that's you this evening and you want to have a talk about that, there's a tick on the communication card that you can come and do a gifts test on one hand and come and have a chat to someone about how to use your gifts on the other. But one of the really simple ways to do this is to ask two questions. What is it that I have? And what is it that they need? What is it that I have? And what is it that they need? What is it that God has given me in my life? Money, time, whatever it is, experience, this, that, whatever it is. And looking at the body and thinking, what, where is that needed? And putting it at that. Sometimes it's in ways that you don't really want to do. And in ways that are very unfulfilling, actually, and difficult and hard. But in that, God is working. How is it that you are needed? And how is it that you're allowing others to minister to you? So the first miracle is the greatest. The source of all things is the glory of God. God is a bodybuilder, and we are all needy and needed. And so what holds us back from this community? What holds us back from this reality? I think the thing that holds us back in our day and age is our longing to be in control. Our longing to dictate the terms of our own life and the security that that brings. But I want to suggest to you tonight that being in the hands of the sovereign spirit who exalts the Lord Jesus Christ is much better than any control you have. You know, Sarah died years 30 years before Samuel went up into the pulpit to preach about slavery. And do you know what? Samuel actually died alone and in poverty, having preached an unpopular message most of his life and seeing no movement forward in the slave trade. Only for one of the people he annoyed most from the pulpit to take up the charge and lead the movement forward. He died gathering works together, not knowing that for the next 50 years they would spark a revival that would quadruple the size of the church in the region where he preached. You know, these weren't people who felt in control. These were people who had looked at what was in their hands, put it to the plow, and let God do his work among his people. And much glory was brought to God through them. What I want to say to you tonight, is that even if your heart is hesitant to hand your gifts, hand what God has given to you over to the Lord Jesus, that they are much safer in his hands than in yours. And that the Lord Jesus on the cross surrendered everything he was in order to give you a secure place in heaven so you would not need any control in this earth but can instead pour yourself out as he did and bring glory to his name. So in the power of his grace, look at what you have and sow it into your brothers and sisters and leave it in his hands. Let's pray. Father, we are undeserving of your gracious favor undeserving to receive your spirit at all, to have him pry open our chest and remake our heart and hit our knees to the ground 
and that you would knit us together into a community where you want to use us powerfully, deeply, mightily. Father, we are in awe. And we ask you to show us the things that you put into our hands to use for this community to bring glory to your name. And we pray, Lord, not to do it in our strength or our power, but in the power of your spirit and for the glory of your son. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.